Good morning. If you would, turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're getting close to the end of the book of Ephesians, but not on our study of the church at Ephesus. If you remember, we started off with uh, the church at Ephesus in Acts, and then we moved through the book of Ephesians, and now we get to follow them later into uh, the pastoral epistles to Timothy and uh, the book of Revelation. But we're getting close to the end of this letter to the Ephesians. Last week, we finished the well-known text concerning the armor of God, taking it all the way down through verse 17, which included the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word. But I want you to note, when you look there at the end of verse 17, this is not where Paul ends his sentence. Having described the armor of God up to the point where he brings up the sword of the Spirit as God's Word, Right, the Word of God through which God communicates with us, he immediately and naturally flows into the remainder of our conversation with the Lord, prayer with which we speak to him. So prayer is the effective means by which the armor of God is put into practice. So we'll start again at verse 10 but our our concentration is going to be verses 18 through 20 this morning. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, where which you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, As we've gone through this armor of God, we've sort of steadfastly insisted that the imagery of an ancient soldier prepared for battle is still applicable to modern readers. So we don't want to change this to the M16 of the Spirit or the Patriot Missile Shield of Faith, right? But there is one piece of modern battlefield equipment that it is hard to resist bringing into the discussion. In his book, 
let the nations be glad, John Piper suggested prayer is similar to a battlefield soldier with a walkie-talkie, even though we treat it more like a rich royal who's ringing a dinner bell. Here's, Here's a quote from Piper. He said, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs to have more comforts brought to the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Look, as we engage in this spiritual warfare against the schemes of Satan and spiritual wickedness in high places, which Paul talks about here, we need to maintain communication with our commander. We get to know his mind through the word of God, and he's willing to hear our mind as we pray to him. When you talk with the Lord, the only way that conversation works is when you speak to him in prayer and then listen closely as he speaks to you through his complete and sufficient word. This is why Paul so naturally moves from the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God in verse 17, Right, Scripture through which we hear God speak. And he naturally moves into praying always in verse 18 in which we get to speak with God. So let's work through this text together and see two essential aspects to this urgent call to prayer. There's two essential aspects to this urgent call to prayer. And the first one is the encompassing nature of prayer in verse 18. Look again at verse 18 with me, and as we read it again, make special note of how Paul uses the word all four separate times in this verse. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. When you see Paul's use of that word all four different times, you can identify these four qualities of the sort of all-encompassing nature of prayer. The first one is about the frequency of prayer. When Paul says praying always, it means on every occasion or at all times. Prayer is is the consistent mindset and activity of the children of God. Elsewhere, the New Testament says to continue steadfastly in prayer in Romans 12.12, or to don't be anxious about anything, but engage in consistent prayer in Philippians 4.6. Colossians 4.2 says to continue earnestly in prayer. Famously, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 commands us to Pray without ceasing, right? Non-stop prayer. Paul put this in practice. He, he assured to his friend Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.3 1, 1, that he 
constantly prayed for him night and day. And when the Lord Jesus taught his disciples about the end times, he urged them in Luke 21 to keep watch and pray always. Right? This idea of praying always or praying at all times or praying without stopping, some say it is impossible and trying to do so would end up being sort of a, a crippling duty for saints. Their idea is that if we really did that, we would end up so frozen in the posture of prayer that we couldn't manage to get off our knees and actually live any kind of productive life. But praying always is not a command to be, you know, always literally head down, eyes closed in the posture of prayer. It's telling us that if we are to live consistently, we'll do it with the knowledge that we are constantly indebted to our Heavenly Father for all our earthly needs. I really think the imagery here of spiritual warfare is extremely helpful in understanding what it means to pray always. Listen, when you know that the enemy is real and powerful and bent on your destruction, what soldier is there that would not be in constant mindful prayer? Right? And yet the army is not going to be inattentive to the practical needs of battle before them. Every soldier is going to be in prayer at all times, yet with their eyes wide open to whatever attack might come. In fact, later on in this text, Paul even uses a military term when he writes this prayer is to be engaged while watching. He uses that word watching there in verse 18. That's a word for a soldier's duty to be alert. It's literally a word that means to pass a sleepless night, to to remain alert on guard duty. In short, to be always praying or to pray without stopping, it does not prevent us from being engaged. It's the only sure sign of a Christian soldier who is wide awake, alert, and attentive to the spiritual battle around us. We have to pray non-stop, without stopping, to have that mindfulness of prayer. So the first of these four uses of all is that pray at all times. The second in verse 18 is to, uh, with all prayer and supplication. And it might seem a little redundant to say pray with all prayer. But some understanding of the construction of Paul's sentence here might give us some more clarity. You have to know and. New Testament Greek word order is different than it is in English. Um, like Star Wars from Yoda, it sounds sometimes, right? I mean, it's just word order is not always the same. And so what Paul is writing here is, is that we should be praying all times, look at verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit. And then that prayer and supplication is a description of, of the kinds of prayer we should pray. So, praying in the Spirit is not encouragement to, you know, speak in tongues, right? You're, you're, you're speaking to God himself. He, he doesn't need you to speak his language. He understands your heart and mind. Praying in the Spirit is simply to say that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, and you are guided by the Holy Spirit of God, and that Holy Spirit is fully engaged when we pray. If you recall, Paul 
told the church at Rome in Romans 8.26 that there are times where we don't even know what to pray for as we ought to, but as we pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings which go deeper than words. Praying to God outside of the influence of the Holy Spirit of God is an entirely pointless endeavor. In fact, the New Testament teaches us that all three members of the Godhead are involved in prayer. We pray to God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of God the Son. So Paul simply is reminding the Ephesians of that fact, pray at all times in the Spirit. And then these words, with all prayer and supplication, are there to tell us about the kinds of prayer we're to pray. Christian prayer consists of many different forms, right? We can pray publicly or privately. We can pray with thankful hearts or tear-stained faces. We can pray on formal occasions or on unplanned moments. We pray with hearts brimming with thankfulness and gratitude and praise or sometimes just filled and overwhelmed with our our needs and requests, right? This word prayer, Paul keeps using, simply describes the act of speaking to God, while the word supplication carries the idea of making a request or an appeal or a petition. John MacArthur suggests the word prayer is referring to generalities, while supplication is referring to more specific needs. And that that can, of course, be for our own specific needs, but it also refers, as we'll see in a moment, to the specific needs of others. So, first, pray at all times. Second, pray in all kinds of ways. Third, pray with all perseverance. Paul says, watching thereunto with all perseverance. I like the New King James Version here. Being watchful, to this end with all perseverance. Now I've already noted that word watchful is a military term for being alert, staying awake on watch. So Paul's saying to remain alert with all perseverance, that is all endurance, all consistency, all persistence, all diligence. Prayer is not a part-time hobby for the super spiritual. It is a full-time calling for every blood-bought disciple of Jesus. Now, Jesus warns in the Sermon on the Mount to avoid vain or empty repetitions as if God is going to hear you for your much speaking, right? But persistence in prayer is respected by the Lord. How, how do we make sense of that? How, how can we embrace Jesus' warning about empty repetitions in prayer and also follow this command to pray with all persistence or all diligence? The differences in the heart of the prayer. Thinking that your words are ultimately going to force God to act leads to vain, it leads to empty repetition. 
But faithful persistence is found when we recognize that persistence is not overcoming God's reluctance to bless. It's laying hold of his willingness to bless. Two special parables of the Lord Jesus are helpful examples of what it means to pray with persistence. I'll just remind you of both. The first is in Luke 11. It's the parable of the persistent friend. Right? This friend, he gets an unexpected house guest late at night. He goes knocking on his friend's door in the middle of the night because he needs help providing some food to put on the table for the traveler who's come to him. And he keeps knocking on that door in the middle of the night, though it might be an inconvenience, because that man inside is his friend, and he is appealing to the man's friendship. Jesus concluded that our Heavenly Father is even better. So Jesus applied that story by saying, Keep on asking and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and you'll find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened. The other parable is the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18. It's one of my favorites. She sought justice from an unjust judge. To do this, she followed him to work. She followed him down the street. She followed him to his house. She followed him everywhere, appealing for justice. And that unjust judge was not inclined to kindness. But he decided to give her help because he, he eventually said, she's just going to keep berating me until it is, I do what she wants. Jesus' conclusion to that story was to say, don't you think God is better than an unrighteous judge? Won't he give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Again, persistence in prayer is encouraged for children of God. As we remember, the Father to whom we pray knows us and loves us. And he will answer graciously, and he will answer graciously at his perfect time. We're not overcoming his reluctance to answer our prayer. Persistence in prayer is embracing God's willingness to answer in his time for his glory. So of these four alls in verse 18, the first is pray at all times. The second is pray in all kinds of ways. The third is pray with all perseverance or persistence. The fourth all he uses in verse 18 is supplication for all saints. And again, this might seem like Paul's just being repetitious here because he's already used that term supplication, right? Petitions, appeals, requests. But in reality, the point here is shifted. He specifies a new focus for these requests. That is, you're making these requests, he says, for all saints. When we bring our prayers to God, first off, there ought to be more than just petitions or requests. I think it's good for us to have a prayer list in which we bring our needs to God. But prayer is more than just presenting the Lord with your wish list. Prayer includes praise and thankfulness and repentance as much as it does uh, petitions to the Lord. But specifically, when we bring petitions, Paul says our petitions, our supplication, 
is not just handing God our personal wish list, like God is a genie stuck inside a magic lamp and we get to call on him to fulfill our requests and grant our desires. A prayer full of selfish petitions falls short of the mark. So Paul's final all here is for us to pray bringing petitions to God for the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, to to make these petitions for all saints. We're praying for others as much as for ourselves. We've already noted one example of this in Paul's letter to Timothy. It's perhaps a little ironic that when Paul writes later to Timothy, he's writing as he has left Timothy behind at Ephesus to be an elder in this church, which is so difficult that it's Scares the, the, it scares the wits out of Timothy. I mean, he's just frightened of this situation. And Paul writes to encourage him and says, look, I know you're afraid, but you shouldn't be because God's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and understanding. And I'm praying for you day and night. This is the es- essence of making prayer for all saints. You need to be praying for others. You need to be asking others to pray for you. There should be no reluctance here, as James tells us, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Not only is this the right thing for you to do for others, but y'all, it's the right thing for you to do for yourself. Praying for others is ultimately good for you. Bringing petitions to God on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ is not an entirely selfless act. Think of it this way, in the imagery that Paul's giving in this text. Picture a a fully armored soldier standing in the front line of battle. It's maybe not just a kind of unselfish philanthropy that causes that man to ask God to make the soldiers on either side of him strong. I mean, it's in your best interest that God answers the needs of the Christian soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder with you in battle. So bring your petitions for all saints. Okay, verse 18 is about the encompassing nature of prayer, right? We're called to pray all the time in all kinds of ways with all persistence for all the saints. This is the first essential aspect of the urgent call to pray. It is the encompassing nature of prayer. The other aspect we want to look at is the empowering nature of prayer in verses 19 and 20. So having commanded in verse 18 to pray for all saints, Paul doesn't hesitate to include himself on their prayer list, right? If if the church at Ephesus was handing out a Sunday bulletin, Paul's like, put me on the list. Make sure you're praying for me. As an example of making a petition for, for others, Paul says in verses 19 and 20, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. 
Okay, I want to tax your memory here for just a moment. I mean, we're in Illinois. It's about the only thing that's not getting taxed, so we might as well go for it. We learned in Acts that Paul came to Ephesus, that he preached the gospel, that he established this church, that he stayed for two and a half years teaching them the whole counsel of God before he finally moved on. When he decided later that he was going to return to Jerusalem, he even stopped by a port nearby Ephesus, called the elders of the church to meet him at that port so he could talk to them again. He told them essentially, I'm headed to Jerusalem. I don't know with certainty what awaits me there, but the Holy Spirit's given plenty of warnings telling us it's probably not going to be pleasant. Right? And then they, they followed him onto the ship because he had told them, you're not going to see my face again. And so as he continued to Jerusalem, he got arrested in the temple courtyard. By the way, one of the accusations against him was that he had brought a Gentile from Ephesus, a man named Trophimus, into the inner courtyard of the temple, which he hadn't done. So he was accosted in the temple. He was re-arrested from the Jews by Roman soldiers who were planning to beat a confession out of him. And eventually he was imprisoned for years in Caesarea that's along the, the side of the sea in order to be shipped to Rome. The Ephesians knew they were not going to see him again. But at this point, they had not even heard from him again. And part of the reason he's writing this is to let, the, him, let them know how things are going. And in fact, there are some details about how things are going that it wouldn't be wise to write down on paper. So you can look at the very next verse. Verse 21, he says that you may also know my affairs and how I do. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will make all things known to you. So how are things going? <laughs> Not great. Verse 20, he is in bonds. That word bonds means literally chains or shackles, right? As he is being held at Caesarea, he's not free to roam about the palace. His, his feet are in manacles. His ankles probably rubbed raw, sitting imprisoned in some room in the Roman palace at Caesarea. Meanwhile, the Jews are sending special prosecutors to try to condemn him in court and he's stuck there until the local governor gets replaced and somebody can finally decide what to do. Now, understanding that background, how would that go down on our prayer list? If we were going to list Paul in the bulletin, it would probably say something so simple as, you know, remember the Apostle Paul for freedom and acquittal or Brother Paul for comfort and strength in prison. It is very unlikely that what we would put is Paul, not for a get-out-of-jail-free card, but for the ability to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the very people who would like nothing better than murder him for it. But that's what Paul asks for. Listen, Paul asking for prayer for boldness it is a sort of evidence that proves his concern for his own weakness. And this should be encouraging to us. 
as theologically sound and spiritually enlightened as Paul was, it's unlikely that he knew exactly everything that his future held. He might remain in prison there for a long time. He, he might get to appeal and get shipped to Rome soon. He does know that eventually God's plan is for him to make it to Rome, but he doesn't have a timetable. He certainly doesn't know the kind of harsh treatment that he's going to receive along the way. And yet his concern, listen to this, the Apostle Paul's concern is that he would have enough courage that he wouldn't keep his mouth shut. Like, y'all, do you feel that? Does it seem like your own experience? Or you think if you were just a little more bold, maybe you would open your mouth and declare the gospel of Jesus? Twice, in verses 19 and 20, he uses that word boldly, right? In verse 19, that I might open my mouth boldly, verse 20, that therein, or literally, that in these chains... I may speak boldly. This word is a word for confidence, or we might say fearlessly. In himself, there's no confidence. Left to his own devices, even the Apostle Paul says fear is going to keep his mouth shut. And yet he knows his job. He knows his spiritual calling. In verse 20, he says is to be an ambassador. An ambassador sent to a foreign nation from a home government doesn't get the option of keeping his mouth shut. My favorite example of this is in U.S. history. There was a man named Joseph Grew who had the assignment of being the U.S. ambassador to Japan for 10 years beginning in 1932. Now for y'all who know your history and can do math, that means... He was ambassador to Japan in in 1941 when they attacked Pearl Harbor. His position was a challenge to say the least. It was his job to deliver the message from the leader of the United States, delivering with authority a message that in many ways was not his own message. He didn't get a chance to make up what he wanted to say. He didn't get a chance. He didn't have the option of keeping his mouth shut. He was required to live in a foreign country to which he had no allegiance, explain to them the position they had put themselves in as enemies of his country. He was imprisoned, he was challenged, he was mistreated, he was often ignored. But an ambassador doesn't get to make up their own message, no matter how much they're mistreated. A faithful ambassador in the enemy's hands simply gets to say, whether you like it or not, Here are the terms of peace. Paul calls himself an ambassador in chains. And he knows he needs the empowerment of God to speak the gospel of Jesus, the end of verse 20, boldly, fearlessly, as I ought to speak, as is right for me to speak. Right? Repenting of your sins and entrusting your eternal soul to the Lord Jesus is the only acceptable means to find peace with God. The world may not like that message, and you might fear declaring that message, but proclaiming Jesus boldly is what we ought to do. 
And so how can we overcome that fear in our hearts? Well, Paul says the key is the God-given boldness to fulfill our God-given purpose. And thankfully, Paul says here that the Ephesians can help. Here's an example of how Ephesians can make petitions for all saints. And it is simply, Paul says, look, pray for me. I'm afraid I need gospel boldness. Incidentally, I think the Ephesians did pray for him. Furthermore, God answered that prayer. Later on in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he writes to Timothy as Timothy's pastoring this church at Ephesus. And he tells him, and so by extension the church, about the trials he faced. He, he wrote essentially, at my first defense, no one stood with me. Everyone forsook me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that the message was fully preached through me so that all the Gentiles could hear. When's the last time you asked God for gospel boldness? When have you or have you ever asked God to empower yourself or your brothers and sisters in Christ to declare with a fearless heart with confidence and clarity that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. When you pray like that for others' good and for God's glory, you can be sure you're making a God-honoring appeal. So just to sort of wrap this up, think, think of how this works in the, the whole scheme of this passage, starting up at verse 10, where Paul's saying, look, we're... We're in this struggle, and it's not a struggle against flesh and blood. You're not in a fight that you get to literally wrestle with somebody. But we're, against, we're, we're fighting against wickedness, against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. Put on the whole armor of God. And when you put on the whole armor of God, pray effectively. Sometimes we talk about prayer warriors. And I don't think that's a bad term unless we think of prayer warriors as some kind of special class of people, some specifically gifted individuals who are willing, persistent, and effective in prayer. Nobody gets a pass on this. Nobody gets to say, well, that's not my area of giftedness. While some folks may indeed have a special gift to pray diligently All of the Lord's saints are called to the spiritual warfare. All of the Lord's saints are called to put on all the armor of God. And all of the Lord's saints are called on to communicate with our commander. Just as people need the armor of God, we also need to be prayer warriors. Our prayer is made known to God the Father in the power of God the Holy Spirit through the name of Jesus Christ, God the Son. The lesson that we learn from this text, verses 18 through 20, is that we are called to embrace the encompassing nature of prayer, right? Praying at all the, all the time, in all kinds of ways, with all persistence, making petition for all the saints. And we're called to embrace the empowering nature of prayer, that God would instill gospel boldness that we would proclaim the message of the Lord Jesus as we ought to do.